Hello, I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to this week's book show. This week we're heading to Scotland's book town to talk to a man whose diaries and cantankerousnesses at his own customers, Sean Bithell, kept me sane in lockdown one. Our book club this week is in County Offaly. They get to ask questions of Anne Griffin about when all is said and Stephanie Preisner is here to explain which author scared her so much she had to put their work in the freezer. It's a good place to put things if, if, if you get too emotional. I recommend putting lots of things in the freezer. And we'll find out what they are in a few minutes. But first. Sean Bithell became the accidental proprietor of Scotland's largest second-hand bookshop some 20 years ago. From his base in Wigtown in the south of Scotland, he has since written two volumes of diaries about life as a bookseller. In both, he bemoaned the lot of all shopkeepers having to deal with the public. He has a reputation for casting a somewhat sardonic eye over people, not like you and me, of course, who patronise his or indeed any bookshop. However, in writing his new book, fittingly titled Seven Kinds of People You Find in Bookshops, he has found that... And I quote, our customers, those wretched creatures with whom we're forced to interact on a daily basis, from the charming and interesting to the rude and offensive, I miss them all. Sean, welcome to the book show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, For anybody who's read your diaries, like myself, did you think that you would actually miss having customers? I would have put you down as somebody who would not be in that category. I mean, apart from the whole drop in income, obviously. Um. Yes, actually, I, I was delighted when uh, we were forced to close the shop initially. But it's surprising how quickly you you do miss if you're used to it every day. Even though it can be exhausting and uh, people can be immensely irritating, if your day is normally filled with that kind of human interaction, when it's taken away, you do miss it. I, I was quite surprised. It didn't take me long before I started missing my customers. Because, and you'll have spoken about this in, in both sets of, of diaries, you don't really sell stuff online, certainly not anymore. Uh, no, I, I stopped selling online two years ago, um, which was, in the light of the pandemic, possibly the worst business decision I've made. And I've made quite a few seriously bad decisions over the years, uh, which didn't help me through lockdown, I have to say. How exactly are you surviving at the moment? Well, since lockdown ended, the shop has been busier than it's ever been before. Uh, and that includes during our book festival, uh, which is you know, normally the most bounteous time of year. But um, I think people have been, uh, first of all, not going abroad. Um, and secondly, this region has had a very low instance of COVID. So people have chosen to come here for their holiday Um And the other element is, which I'm I'm sure lots of people have spoken about before, which is that uh, during lockdown, people didn't have that much opportunity opportunity to go out and spend money. Um, So when eventually that opportunity was presented, people actually had money to spend and were quite happy to spend it. So our takings since the lockdown was lifted have been, I would say, at least double what we'd expect for the the, the period since then which is remarkable. Of course, taking perhaps the flip side of that and talking about the the books and now about the the brand new book, that means your shop is full of people. I mean, you've you've slightly changed gear with seven kinds of people you find in in bookshops. What prompted that? Um, It wasn't my choice, actually. My publisher uh, emailed me and said, we want another book, but we think (laughs) your readers need a break from the diary, (laughs) which... Is probably true. So that I prefer the diary format. I, you know, I struggled writing 
seven kinds of people you find in bookshops. But actually, once I got into it, it, it was fine. It was just the initial, it was like anything, the hardest thing to do is to start, whether it's exercise or writing a book. Once you've started it, it it's not that difficult. But yeah, that, I, I'm hoping my publisher will want another diary because I've got another five years of it written in draft form, fingers crossed. Tell us a little bit about which of the seven kinds is your favourite. <laughs> oh, I hate them all. Um, <laughs> no, uh, this, and this is the sort of paradox. That actually, most customers are really gen, genuinely decent, kind, polite people. It's, uh, you, you just focus on the ones that, that are rude or offensive from Yorkshire. Um, so uh, I would say probably my one of my favorite kinds is definitely the science fiction fan because they never ever give you any hassle about bargaining down prices. They always find something um, and they're always delighted with whatever it is they find. So despite the kind of nerdy image of the, the sci-fi fan, uh, they're, they're definitely amongst the amongst the best of my customers. Given that we are pre-watershed here, um, I want to put this very gently. There is, and you've talked about this before, a certain amount of traffic between the railway section of your shop and the erotica section. Yes. Um, when I bought the shop, there wasn't an erotica section. Uh, I think the, the previous owner decided he wasn't going to uh, sell that kind of material, but I, I have no such scruples. Uh, so... I foolishly found a bit of space in the shop, put some shelves up, and it just happened to be near the railway section. And quite a few erotica browsers don't like to be seen reading uh, um, erotic books, or you know, particularly if they've got a quite salacious dust jacket. Um, so they drift into the railway section, which is slightly more secluded and just around the corner. And we frequently find um, books from the erotica section I presume hastily shoved onto a shelf in the railway section uh, when someone else comes into the room but yeah it's not uncommon um, and it always causes amusement particularly amongst railway buyers when they pick a book off the shelf and it's not quite what they were expecting. I think one of the things that I, I, I like so much about yourself is is that you know one of the kinds of people you do find in, in a bookshop is the proprietor. And in the interest of balance, you describe the second-hand bookseller as, and I quote, ancient, crumbling, often drunk or hungover, self-employed. Nobody would ever give a job to somebody so completely devoid of the most rudimentary social skills that even a Neanderthal outcast would look like Jay Gatsby in their company. I shouldn't be laughing at my own writing. Really, but, uh, yeah, that that pretty much defines most uh, antiquarian and secondhand booksellers that I know, and I include myself in their ranks. So it's a, the stereotype that black books, Dylan, I, everyone over here pronounces it Moran, but I know in Ireland it's Moran. Good uh, man, well spotted. Um, so he just nailed it. He and Graham Linhan, whenever they were writing black books, I don't know how they managed to get so much of it in almost pin-sharp detail. It, it was so well-written uh, and, of course, beautifully acted as well. But, yeah, we, you, I think you start out with a sort of sense of naive optimism. And uh, I would say within five years, that's completely gone. Um, and you, you do become like Bernard Black. There are a couple of exceptions amongst the booksellers that I know, but really very, very few. Tell me a little bit 
about Wigtown itself and about the town and its its reputation and 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 its connection to the book world in general. Well, Wigtown became Scotland's national book town. I think it was 1998, something like that. So it's a small town. It's only 900 people. It's in a very ancient town as well. It's, I think it got a royal charter in about 1100 or something. When I was a child, it used to be kind of vibrant, successful place. But then the creamery and the distillery, which were the main employers, closed. And then it just went down and down and down very quickly until there were practically no open shops. And the place had a sort of whiff of dereliction about it. But since the, the book town status, that's changed beyond recognition, actually. It's, you know, the town looks shy, slightly shy of saying prosperous, but it certainly doesn't look as impoverished as it did. So there are in the town about seven bookshops. And the whole economic model was taken from Hay on Wye, uh, which Richard Booth created as a book town in, I I think in the 70s but we're slightly different from Hay because within a 50 mile catchment of Hay you've probably you've got Bristol, Cardiff, um, I think you've probably got Birmingham so you, you're talking about sort of seven or eight million people probably um, whereas within a 50 mile radius of Wigtown you've got an awful lot of sea um, and some mountains and an awful lot of sheep probably as many sheep well, more sheep than people actually so that we're never going to be as prosperous as hay but it certainly has made a massive difference to the to the local economy one there's one interesting thing actually i was speaking to my mother who's from um, county clare and i don't think there's an irish book town and she suggested it uh, and it just hadn't occurred to me because most countries now in certainly in the eu have a book town modeled on hay on why it's ireland doesn't as far as i know have one but it, it seems like a missed opportunity because uh, it really has regenerated Wigtown. That's a great idea. Uh, I'd say there's a few towns here that might want to look at forming an orderly queue. Sean Bithell, thanks for joining me on The Book Show. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much for having me. Seven Kinds of People You Find in Bookshops by Sean Biffle. That's Sean spelled S-H-A-U-N and Biffle as B-Y-T-H-E-L-L, just in case you're looking it up, is published next Thursday by Profile Books. And it may be some time before you're in southern Scotland, but you can find Sean on Twitter at Wigtown Bookshop and he's the Bookshop Wigtown on Facebook. Given that it is Halloween weekend and scary stories of all descriptions have been with us since time immemorial, when better to take a quick peek at the genre? Stephanie Preisner is with me to talk about suspense, being spooked and why she put a Stephen King book in a freezer. Is it a specific Stephen King book? It was. It started with a specific Stephen King book. It was Pet Cemetery, but I've put loads of things in the freezer. Anything when things get too emotionally intense, you put them in the freezer. Also grapes. Grapes are delicious from the freezer. Do you read books to be scared? Not really. It's not something I enjoy. I don't mind being unsettled. I like almost taking the pages and reading them at arm's length. I'm, I'm fine with that. What does that for you? So the first book I had that experience with was Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. And I read it a few times because the first time I read it, I had to, like you said, read it at arm's length, read it through my fingers. I'd have to skip forward to the next, stop in the middle of the really scary bit, skip forward to the next chapter and then go back and read the scary bit again or read the scary bit during daylight or when we were in the car or something not scary was happening around me. And then I've been chasing that dragon since trying to find that same fear factor again. I often find it with Stephen King. 
But Pet Cemetery is definitely the best. Has anybody else come close? Edgar Allan Poe a little bit, but only after I got to an age where the sort of over-eloquent language, I didn't have to kind of jump. That was a barrier to actually being spooked because I was like, what does that even mean? But once I understood what it meant and I was used to reading that kind of English, then those things were kind of creepy. I've, the raven, like. Yeah, I've found, and probably the only thing is I do find weird and strange and that make me feel unsettling. If you've ever read Roald Dahl's adult stories, not his kids' stories, the stuff that was later made into Tales of the Unexpected on TV. So there's a collection called Kiss Kiss, which is really full of weirdly, strangely unsettling stuff. Um, Shirley Jackson, any of Shirley Jackson's books, she does that really well. And... If anybody's into Victorian horror, M.R. James is the king of Victorian horror, where usually if you, he's usually an academic somewhere, his main character, and he arrives in a strange city and finds himself being pursued by something that he's not quite sure if it's real or not and may or may not be supernatural. And then somebody finds his dead body the following morning at the end of the story. Those kind of stories I, I like very much. You just much. spoil it for anyone listening, but that's fine. <laughs> it's most I, of M.R. James' stories. What I do find is that the best books... Like the best, scariest books that you read, they're never as good when they're made into films. So why, if a, if a book works for you horror-wise and a film doesn't, why? Because you can't escape a book. Because in a book, it's you and the author and that's it. There's no space between you in a cinema or in a, when you're watching a film. There's a whole sitting room or a whole cinema between you. You can close your eyes, you can drift off. When you close your eyes and you're reading a scary book, it's even worse. Because you're just left with your imagination about what's going to happen next. So you have to keep reading. But then reading is horrifying and there's just no escaping it. Even when you put it down, you have to have, I don't know, like daisies and butterflies in your face in order to get distracted from it. And next thing you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and that's even worse. And it's such a quiet experience when you read. It's just you and the book and the sound of a page turning. And it's terrifying when you're in a really scary situation. Like sometimes you have to, I don't know, put on really happy music in order to just get to the end of the chapter because I can't close a book. I find it really hard to close a book without getting to the end of a chapter. But sometimes when you're reading a scary book, getting to the end of a chapter is like an Olympic, I I don't know, it's a Herculean task. I like the idea of the online masterclass that there are eight tips for writing a horror novel. I, I hate tips for things, to be honest, though. Like... Who, who gave those tips and, and, and is a really successful book going to come out of them? But the first one is pull ideas from your own real life. So if that's the case, there's just going to be a load of horror books about a pandemic um, because I can just imagine people being like, oh, I have a great idea for a book. You're like, oh, wow, original. And then write the book title first. But sure, people agonise over book titles long after the book is actually written. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, particularly these days of people who are writing from their own lives, there'll be a lot of stories set in, you know, in people's spare bedroom or set in the middle of a Zoom call. Which is horrifying, to be honest. Like I, This is all true. Yeah, really awful. Write the ending first. Start with a shocking first chapter. But sure, those aren't tips. Like, that's a craft. <laughs> that's not, it's like, oh, that's what I have to do. I think what might be really helpful is if people have never read Stephen King's On Writing. It's the only other Stephen King thing I've ever read and it's non-fiction and it's incredibly illuminating about what you should do if you want to take the craft of writing seriously. And I read it and of course I did not take the craft of writing seriously. It's also the most disappointing book I've ever bought and paid money for because it was kind of like Stephen King, oh my God, he's got this new book out. It's called On Writing. I was like, yes, it's going to be like about a killer who like kills people with pens or something. Bought it, paid for it with my own money. No, it's not. It's a book about how to write. Devastated. We'll never forgive Stephen King for it. One of these days, we're going to agree on something. I'm absolutely sure of that. Stephanie Breisner, thank you again. Thanks so much.
Every week here on The Book Show, we ask an author to meet a book club. This week, we're going to hear from County Offaly, and here is Maura to tell us all about the contributors. The Tanyard Lane Book Club, Tullamore, first met in May 2018. The bar we met in is beside Tanyard Lane, hence the name. We have seven members and meet on the first Wednesday of every month. Our reading preferences are wide-ranging. During the past 12 months, our selections have included China Meiville's The City in the City, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, Janelle Brown's Watch Me Disappear, and Bel Canto by Anne Patchett. Since last March, our discussions have been through Zoom. It works well because some authors have joined us remotely. Two of our members write short stories, and one recently published the first in a crime fiction trilogy. To date, we've discussed 30 books. In October 2019, our read was Anne Griffin's novel, When All Is Said. We invited Anne to join us for a book chat, and When All Is Said remains the highest rated of our reads. As Maura hinted there, this week's book is When All Is Said by Anne Griffin. And here's Owen from the Tanyard Lane Book Club to give us a sense of it. When All Is Said begins with 84-year-old farmer Morris Hannigan sitting alone in a bar reflecting on his life. Over the next five hours, he orders five different drinks to toast the five people who've meant the most to him. Through this internal monologue, we learn about his good times and bad, relationships he's had with people, along with disappointments, triumphs, a tragedy kept hidden and a fierce love that never aligned. Morris is a complicated, flawed, strong-willed character. It's enthralling to see his tale unfold. Each toast takes us deeper into his life story and how his whole existence is entangled with the Dollard family, whom he hates. The mystery of an Edwardian gold sovereign threads its way through the novel, and there's an emotional ending that'll make you cry if you aren't already. This mesmerising fly-on-the-wall view of a man searching for answers to his could-have and should-have thoughts kept me turning the pages to see what happens, Morris, in the end. I'm now joined by the winner of the Newcomer of the Year Prize at last year's Irish Book Awards, Anne Griffin. How are you? I'm great. And just so lovely to be with you, Rick. Lovely to be connecting with the reading and writing world again. And you you obviously made a good impression on our friends in in Tullamore. They must have voted for you last year. Um, Well, I'd be immensely proud if they did. And they are some book club. I, I was very lucky to meet them and to just to feel their enthusiasm, not just about my own book, but about books in general. We had a wonderful discussion after about, you know, what everybody liked, uh, what their favourite genre was. And they're just enthusiastic writers, uh, sorry, readers and writers, because some of them are writers themselves. And book clubs in general are just uh, amazing. And we writers rely on their enthusiasm so much, their engagement on social media and their word of mouth. And really, I... (laughs) I give thanks and I know other writers give thanks for their contribution uh, to the writing world and, and for spreading the message of stories and how wonderful stories are in our lives. Right, we'll take the first question from the Tanyard Lane Book Club in Tullamore and it comes from Lisa Marie. We're all members of the Hannigan and Dollard family fully formed in your head before you've sat down to write when all is said. Mm, it's a really, really good question and 
as a writer, I'm a bit of a gardener. So that means I, I, I dig around and find out the full story. But I will say um, Morris Hannigan and Sadie, his wife, and Kevin um, were there from the beginning. And I certainly had that structure of the toasts being the way that I would deliver the life story of Morris Hannigan there. But I had to figure out who the other players were going to be. So later on, uh, Tony was there as well, the, the first toast actually of the book. Um, but later on, it, it, Noreen emerged and Noreen came along when I was looking, when I started to look at bringing in the coin that weaves its way throughout the book. And so she came in then and then the dollars came in. I knew that I had wanted Morris, obviously, to have an issue with this hotel that he sits in on this night. And he has an issue with this family. And we as the readers are trying to find out what's going on here. So I knew there had to be something um, big that had connected him to this family and had driven him so much to... Uh, to be the wealthy man that he was and the successful man that he was. Um, and Molly now, Molly, who was his stillborn daughter, she came very, very late in the story, actually. And it was a very moving piece to, to write, actually, that and it's gotten a, a lot of reaction from people. Um, in fact, there were other... Um, at one stage, I thought there might be a sixth toast to Emily, but then uh, I realised Morris Hannigan really would only be raising a toast to those immediate family and blood relatives because blood was so important to him um, in terms of close family connections that he trusted and loved. And here's Lorraine with our next question. The structure of When All Is Said is fascinating with the main character speaking directly to the reader. Did you consider other ways of telling Morris's story before deciding on this internal monologue? Lorraine, it was like Morris Hannigan was speaking to me from the moment this story came to me. I could hear him loud and clear and he was demanding that that voice almost be put on the page. So it was almost like I didn't have a choice um, in terms of using that first person monologue. And I, I just I knew him so well and I I don't know how that sounds, but it was it was a very, very strange experience in that I knew this character extremely well from the off. I knew exactly how he would react to things. And uh, I suppose it helped that my father was 84 at the time, so I could hear that voice loud and clear. Um, but there is something about, um, as, as a writer, I love writing in that first person because I feel I'm so close to the character. But I also, as a reader, so enjoy reading the first person. And immediately when I open a book and the first page has I, I went down or I was going, I am drawn in. It's like a little a little extra spark goes off. And that's not to say that I don't love the third person either. I mean, my favourite writer, Richard Russo, writes in the third person all of the time. Um, but it's just there is something about that initial, oh, I'm right inside in this person's brain. I love it and I can't wait to get into the meat of this book. And the final question from the book club comes from Selena and it's one that I like asking authors as well. Has 2020 helped or hindered your writing process? In what way? Oh, yes, Selena. Um, 2020, what a year. So initially, I was quite happy 
with COVID, not with the virus, can I just say, but but with that, uh, the self-isolation, because I think writers practice self-isolation all the time. So we feel that we're the professionals at it, really. But after a while, um, it wasn't good. And, uh, you know, for me, I succumbed to the same thing as everybody else um, does, which is just that locked in syndrome. But in terms of the writing practice, I, I was I was writing my second book. I still am writing my second book through this. And um Initially, I was doing OK. Um, and but, but what happened was because of lockdown, my family had to come back. So it was a bit like um, all my silence was gone. And I, I kind of think about it like uh, a counsellor, if they're trying to counsel their client and in the corner, somebody trying to have a Zoom meeting. It really disturbed me. And I was almost writing nervously and on edge. And at one point I found myself in the back seat of my car trying to write there um, when back when it was it, we had the lovely summer and um, and even Jan Carson, I think one of her wrote one um, of her lovely postcard stories around that whole concept of, of somebody in their car trying to trying to carry out their profession. Um, so I have suffered with it. I really have. But I, I certainly have persevered because you just do have to persevere and writing to, to deadline. It means you have to get there. But what I have to say is what has helped me through is talking to other writers um, and indeed the support of my agent and my editor through that. So I've had to rely heavily on other people, as I think everybody in, in, in Ireland is doing at the minute, relying on other trusted good friends. And Griffin, it's always brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much. An absolute pleasure, Rick, and just a pleasure to have been able to take part, especially with the Tanyard Lane Book Club. What an amazing group of people. When All Is Said by Anne Griffin is published by Scepter. Thanks to Anne for her time and, of course, to the Tanyard Lane Book Club in Tullamore for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future show, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. You can join me live this Wednesday night at 8 o'clock on Shelf Analysis on YouTube where I'm going to be talking to the author of Leonard and Hungry Paul, Ronan Hessian. If you can't watch live, of course you can watch back later on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week and as ever, don't forget to check with your own local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.